this is Susan Spratt for Healthy Bites, a podcast supported by Duke Well and the Duke Population Health Management Office. As you may have heard, we are talking about medications for type 2 diabetes. Today, we'll talk to doctors Diana McNeil and Dave D'Alessio about their clinical and research experience with incretin hormones. We'll also discuss their second and third medication choices for patients with diabetes, not at goal. GLP-1s and DPP-4s are indicated for type 2 diabetes. Use caution in patients with a history of pancreatitis or a risk for pancreatitis, such as high triglycerides. Avoid in patients with a personal or family history of medullary thyroid cancer. GLP-1s may cause nausea, but this abates with time or at a lower dose. In addition, instructing patients to eat smaller meals may help with nausea and allow for a full dose titration. GLP-1s are injections that are given anywhere from twice daily to once weekly. They can cause weight loss, an added benefit to reducing A1C by 1 to 1.5%. GLP-1s are now available mixed with basal insulin, making these one pen and therefore one shot an attractive alternative for patients who need basal insulin, but also need some additional prandial coverage. DPP-4s are weight neutral, and although not as potent in reducing A1C, are generally well tolerated. Trigenta has no renal restrictions, making it a possible choice for those with CKD. Used alone or without therapies that cause hypoglycemia, GLP-1s and DPP-4s do not cause hypoglycemia. There's no added benefit using a GLP-1 with a DPP-4, so there's no indication to use them together. And now let's talk to Dr. Diana McNeil. We're doing a series of podcasts on diabetes medications. And these podcasts are designed so that people can pop them into their phone and listen to them while they're driving home. So we want them to be excited. Or while they're exercising, Dr. Spratt. You can also listen to them while you're exercising. I'd like to say we are at a stand-up desk today. We are not sitting down. As you know, we put all patients with type 2 diabetes on metformin at diagnosis. That's usually the way we go. Let's say someone's glucose levels are not at goal. What's your next agent? Well, Susan, it depends on what their financial situation is. And so I work in another clinic with the medical residents, which is a Duke outpatient clinic where we have patients who have some financial constraints. We have to consider less expensive medications, uh, which may not always be my first choice. And those less expensive medications right now are the sulfonylureas. Mm -hmm. And so in certain patient situations, uh, I think we'll start with metformin, which is often on the $4 or less expensive medication list. And then we'll go to something like glipizide or glimepiride, which are also on the $4 list. Now, that being said, if I was totally thinking of just the physiology of diabetes, I would probably consider a a glucagon-like peptide 1 mimetic medication. So these are these really cool drugs that we owe the Gila Monster for helping us develop. The Gila Monster was being studied in a lab, and they looked at its spit. And the spit of the Gila Monster had uh, something called an incretin hormone in there. And that meant nothing to most of us except that, boy, did it help um, decrease the blood glucoses after you ate. And so this led to a lot of study on a hormone that we all have in our body released from the small intestine called glucagon-like peptide 1. And as I tell patients, this is a pretty amazing hormone. So when you eat, it slows down a little bit the food from going out of the stomach. It uh, turns the pancreas on to release insulin depending on the glucose level in the body. 
it turns off the liver from making sugar and sometimes as you all know Susan at higher doses makes you feel full so you don't eat as much and when you think about what we're trying to do with type 2 diabetes you know one of the hard things is you have disordered insulin production and if you can do something to help match the food to this disordered insulin production you will end up with better blood glucose control in the perfect world where cost was not an issue which unfortunately in our world of diabetes that is not the case i would choose a glp1 okay great do you have any tips about starting the glp1s You need to explain to the patient what the drug does. And right now, uh, there are two sort of broad classes of medications that you can use that help increase the glucagon-like peptide in somebody's body. You can either turn off the destruction of the patient's own GLP-1 from the small intestines, and those are done through a group of drugs which carry the interesting name DPP-4 inhibitors, dipeptopeptidase-4 inhibitors. Uh, Those are pills. They're not quite as strong as if I gave you a shot, note the word shot, of GLP-1. And the reason we have to give patients uh, a shot of glucagon-like peptide right now is that when you swallow it in your stomach, it's digested and you don't get it into your body. And so I tell patients the GLP-1s are um, not insulin, but they do do all the things that I already described to help improve your blood glucose control. They can be given twice a day, once a day, once a week. And depending on the patient and depending on their life uh, style, we'll um, teach them how to use it in the clinic. It is important to pay attention to what other medicines they're on when you start these because they can cause a low blood sugar. And so if you happen to add it to someone who's on metformin and a sulfonylurea, or even now it comes as a combination pen, this hormone, with a long-acting insulin, you need to make sure that you either decrease the other medicine or warn them about the signs and symptoms of low blood sugar. What other significant side effects do you see? Well, you would not want to use this in a patient who has medullary thyroid cancer, a very uncommon cancer. And when patients say, well, do you really see it in humans? Well, actually the studies were done in rodents. But many times some of the side effects of medicines are first discovered in animals and then we want to obviously be careful for patients. So if someone has a history of particularly medullary thyroid cancer, pretty uncommon cancer, don't use this medication. And I never use it in someone who either thinks they had pancreatitis or who have had pancreatitis. Of all the side effects of this medicine, which have been relatively few, the handful of patients who've developed pancreatitis are the the ones that I'm most careful about. And if they have had pancreatitis, you do not use this medicine. You already said it can be used with insulin. Mm -hmm. So just because you're starting insulin doesn't mean that this drug needs to be stopped. Any other side effects? I've seen nausea, vomiting, but eventually it goes away. People can build up a tolerance to that or eventually you'll have to stop it. Or you can go back on the dose. So what I tell patients, depending on which one you use, you usually start at the lowest dose of the GLP-1 medication. If someone gets nausea and vomiting as they dial the dose up, tell them to take the dose back down because it may have been that they just reached a a saturation point for the medication. When you look at the combination now of insulin and the GLP-1s, they are starting at remarkably low doses of the GLP-1. And you're dialing the dose of that medicine up based on the insulin requirement. This allows me to remind all of our listeners that when you are teaching patients how to use a pen, you have to make sure they are taught correctly to not just stick the pen in their body, push the knob and pull it out, 
and then watch everything dribble down their mm-hmm. tummy. And this has been a common problem even with our insulin pens, but you also have to make sure that patients uh, are taught how to use these pens correctly. And again, they shouldn't hurt, but you, you really want to make sure they're well-educated. Right, so you have to hold the pen in place when you're injecting right. 10 to 20 seconds. Right. The other issue I've noticed is you have to prime the pen. Now, we definitely say that with insulin pens, and I've heard mixed stories about Bietta, but I recently had a patient who took his pen on an airplane, kept the pen needle on it because he was reusing the pen needles, which we don't like to do, but he was doing that, and I can assure you that other patients are doing that, and it introduced air into the pen, and then when he injected, again, he was injecting air, not insulin, not medication, so if there's air in it, you do have to push it out, just dial up some units mm-hmm. and push it out. Mm-hmm. That's a common or a potential mistake patients mm-hmm. can make. Is there anyone who's not a GLP-1 candidate? Usually um, it's someone who has had any of the complications I already mentioned. So the thyroid cancer patient, medullary thyroid cancer, pancreatitis is my absolute contraindication. Someone who doesn't like to eat with some regularity. So, you know, it's not that you need to eat every meal at the same time, but if you go many days skipping different meals, um, this medication is going to keep working. And so I do think about patients who have erratic eating habits. Thanks, Diana. And now we'll hear from Dr. David D'Alessio. All right, so I'm here with Dr. Dave D'Alessio. He is the Chief of Endocrinology at Duke. Dave, what are your research interests at Duke? Well, our group studies the regulation of insulin secretion, and we're particularly interested in understanding how normal insulin secretion is controlled and how insulin secretion is abnormally controlled in patients with type 2 diabetes. The thing we've studied the most are GI hormones, hormones released from the gut during eating, that stimulate insulin secretion. One of these hormones is called glucagon-like peptide 1, or GLP-1, and it's turned out to be very important in normal insulin secretion and such a strong stimulus for insulin release that drugs are now available to treat diabetic patients based on GLP-1. So when did we first figure out there may be these GI hormones Mm. other than insulin that might be affecting glucose? It's interesting. Way before people could actually measure these hormones in the circulation, they could make inferences about their existence. So the first paper, I think, was 1929 that suggested when you took glucose in through the gut, it was cleared faster or the levels weren't as high as when you gave the same amount intravenously. And the early physiologists inferred this to mean that the gut made some factors that made clearance of glucose much faster. In the 60s, when we could start to measure insulin levels, you could see this phenomenon very clearly. And then in the 70s and the 80s, people started to isolate the factors from the gut that actually are released every time we eat and stimulate insulin secretion. It's actually quite an elegant system where the hormones are released from the gut in proportion to the amount of food you eat. And this sort of relays a message on ahead to the beta cells in the pancreas to make insulin in proportion to how much uh, is going to be needed for that particular meal. Tell me more about normal insulin secretion and GLP-1. Yeah. So every time we eat, the beta cells in the pancreas conjure up and secrete a little bit of insulin for a small meal, a large amount of insulin for a big meal. And they do this very quickly before most of the glucose is absorbed from the gut. Uh, before the levels even peak. And a lot of that is driven by GLP-1. Again, GLP-1 is triggered by nutrients as they are sensed in the gut. 
released so that it actually gets, the beta cells can get a running start, can actually start to make insulin and get it out in the circulation even before the glucose levels get up very high. In healthy people, this is why our blood sugars rarely get about, above about 130, independent of how much food we eat. Where in the gut are they secreted? Yeah, well, so there's little cells spread throughout the lining of the intestine that make hormones. And there's a 20 or 30 some hormones, different hormones made by the gut. Most of the GLP cells are actually down low in the gut in the ileum or the distal small intestine. It's been a bit of a mystery how food in the upper part of the gut gets these cells down in the lower part, part of the gut to respond. And we think there's probably nutrient sensors in the upper gut that are connected to the lower gut by nerves, such that the secretion of GLP is a reflex to food passing from the stomach into the intestine. All right, so what does GLP-1 do? GLP-1 binds to specific receptors that are on beta cells and amplifies the insulin response. It's very interesting, GLP alone at fasting glucose levels, at blood sugars of 90 or below, doesn't stimulate insulin secretion. But anytime the blood sugar is much above 100 or 105, GLP-1 will amplify that, the insulin secretion. It's, it's actually a very highly evolved system. I mean, you can see right there that secretion of GLP-1, say in response to fat, or protein without glucose wouldn't cause hypoglycemia. Blood sugar has to rise before it will stimulate the beta cell to secrete insulin. So in what circumstances in a patient with type 2 diabetes would you add a GLP-1? Well, you know, you can argue that these are very effective drugs. They work through a physiologic system. There's, it's, the only way they work is by binding the GLP-1 receptor so that the responses to GLP-1 are really pre predictable. And so, you, you know, to a certain extent, they're safe drugs. The problem is that you have to inject them twice a day, once a day, or once a week are the current formulations that are available. So that for people who don't like to do injections, that, that's a problem. And they're quite expensive. That being said, those are the really the two major obstacles to their use. The known side effect of GLP-1s is nausea. Some people can get quite nauseated with the first injections, but it tends to be an effect that you get tolerant to, and so it, it ends up not being limiting. I tend to use them after I've tried oral agents, usually two, and not gotten a full effect. I think GLP-1s are a really good add-on at a third spot in the number of medicines that you give to a diabetic patient. They can be very effective in that setting. The reality is you can use them with any of the oral agents and you can use them with insulin. I tend to start them before I move to insulin. And who's not a candidate for a GLP-1? They don't work very well in type 1 diabetes and it would be a mistake to give patients with type 1 diabetes a GLP-1 especially if you held their insulin. They don't add very much there. There was some suggestion in the past that maybe they were linked to increased risk of pancreatitis. In big studies, that hasn't really played out as a major risk factor. Nonetheless, because there was that suspicion, I don't use them in people who have had pancreatitis before. GLPs, one of the benefits of them is that they suppress appetite a little bit and can cause some weight loss. Four kilograms on average are about 10 pounds. I've had patients want to use these who were already really thin and as their weight fell, I thought it was unhealthy. So that would be a rare circumstance where I wouldn't use a GLP-1. But for most people with type 2 diabetes who are overweight or obese, the weight loss effect is, is kind of a nice benefit 
um, or at least uh, the lack of weight gain, which we see with a lot of our other diabetes medicines, uh, is a definite positive. Anything new in the literature about this class of drugs or a particular drug yeah. in this class? Well, the, the really interesting thing, all new diabetes drugs now have to be tested for cardiovascular safety just to make sure that treating a group of people that are at high risk for heart disease, we don't make it worse. It turns out that two of the GLP-1 receptor agonists, liraglutide and semaglutide, have both actually shown benefits. That is, if you, if you randomize people at risk for at diabetic patients at risk for heart disease to get this drug versus other diabetes drugs, the people who get the GLP receptor agonist have less cardiovascular events or less mortality due to cardiovascular events. That's a sort of a novel finding. Again, I see that as a potential benefit. I'd like to see it play out in a few more trials so we could see just how generalizable it was. That is, is this an effect that we can really apply to everybody with type 2 diabetes? But that's really new information that's really shaped the field and I, I think made a lot of people really interested in using these drugs more, but also in how they might work to improve cardiac function. So you do research in GLP-1s. Mm -hmm. Are you, can you tell us anything exciting that well, you're allowed to tell us about before it's... Yeah, no, I mean, we, we are still studying not the GLP-based drugs, but native GLP-1, the hormone that's released by the gut. And what we're very interested in is some findings we made a, a few years ago that show that amongst a population of healthy people, that are, there are some who respond very dramatically to GLP-1. If you give them a, an infusion, they'll increase their insulin secretion tenfold, whereas other people don't respond as well and would increase their insulin secretion only 100% or one-fold. So that there seems to be this huge spectrum of GLP responsiveness in the population. And we're very curious about that. And we're very curious to see if that holds in a diabetic population. Because if that's true, it should be possible to define diabetic patients who are going to respond like gangbusters to these drugs. And those would be the ones you'd want to try them really early. Conversely, there will be some people who maybe won't respond as well. And if there was a way to truly predict that before um, we started, that would be one of the first ways to personalize diabetes care that I can think of. So that's something we're working really hard to determine and then see if we can come up with a biomarker that we can use to predict the responsiveness. Now, you did talk about weight loss. What about these medications for weight loss only in patients without diabetes? Yeah, well, so that's a good point. Loraglutide is now approved for weight loss in non-diabetic people. And the doses that the FDA has allowed them to use for this purpose are higher than we see in diabetic patients. And I would tell you, it's not a miracle drug, but it is better than some of the stuff that's been available in the, in the past. And it can, cause, uh, can give you somewhere between a 5 and 8% and body weight loss, which again, can be medically meaningful can decrease blood pressure and improve lipids and as well as blood sugar. This drug is, is now available and is being used more and more to treat people who want to lose some weight. All right, I've been asking everyone this question. As you know, we almost always start our patients with type 2 on metformin. That's the first mm -hmm. drug we choose. Once glucose control is not a goal, what's your next favorite drug? For most people, I mean, I still use old drugs, so I still use sulfonylurea frequently as my second drug. I like that in combination with metformin. I think those work well together. And particularly, I, I, I do that in uh, younger patients and heavier patients, because I think, you know, one of the complications of sulfonylurea can be hypoglycemia, and I think that's mitigated in heavier patients who are resistant to insulin. I, I use pioglitazone more these days uh, as an insulin sensitizer. 
I think at the lower doses, 15 milligrams or so, you don't get the side effects of edema and weight gain you see at the higher doses. So I've had some success with that. I use DPP-4 inhibitors mostly in older, sicker patients where I'm worried about hypoglycemia. I just need a little bit of blood sugar lowering. I think those are very safe drugs. I don't think they're as potent as some of the other ones we have. I'm very curious about the SGLT2 inhibitors. I don't have a lot of personal experience with those yet, but they seem like they can be useful as well. Again, I tend to be a conservative prescriber. I tend to use older medicines and ones that I've used for a while as my first choice. Now, you said there are 20 incretin hormones secreted. Maybe not 20 incretin hormones, but 20 gut-related hormones uh-huh. uh, that, that are made. So cholecystokinin is a hormone secreted from the upper gut that causes the gallbladder to contract. Mm-hmm. And for, it tells the body that food is reaching the intestine and the gallbladder should dump some bile in there to help digest it. And PYY is a, a hormone that's made in the lower gut that probably has a role in satiety. And there's motilin, which is a upper gut and stomach hormone that affects motility. And ghrelin is a hormone made in the stomach that affects, that actually dr- stimulates appetite. So there's a whole lot of these hormones. And it's an interesting system where some of these hormones are released in the blood or some of these, they're usually small proteins or peptides that are released in the blood and they'll float around and and have our endocrine actions. That is, they'll hit distant target tissues. Other times, these peptides will interact with nerves right in the gut and cause reflexes that affect motility or satiety or things like that. It's a system that's been known about for a long time, but recent methodologies allowed us to define these factors in a much more precise way and sort of see their actions all the way up and down the gut. Since we started talking about GLP-1, the single best combination, single most potent combination I think you can use in a patient is, besides doing multiple doses of insulin, is a basal insulin and a GLP-1. I think that's a particularly good combination, and I think a lot of patients uh, will be able to get really good control with just that combination. It could be any of a number of things. I mean, you could give a separate shot mm-hmm. of loraglutide or with either basal insulin like glargine or basal insulin even like NPH. You could give dulaglutide, which is a once-a-week GLP-1, and then dose basal gl- insulin every day. There are going to be preparations that are all mixed together, insulin and a GLP-1 that you can inject as one shot. And that's certainly convenient. The downside there is you you can't adjust the insulin with every patient. You're sort of yoked into one combination of GLP-1 and insulin. But in general, that's a really potent combination. And sometimes you can get 2% drop in A1C. All right, well, I want to turn the topic to something more fun, and that is because lifestyle is such an important part of type 2 diabetes and also Mm. type 1, what do you do for exercise? Well, I always make sure to get 10,000 to 15,000 steps a day. Do you have a Fitbit or an Apple Watch? I have a Fitbit Mm -hmm. that measures that, and that's made it kind of fun to do that. Just by chance, when I came to Duke, I was given a parking place that was way far away from my (laughs) office, so it's easy for me to do. Um, I still bicycle uh, a lot. I enjoy doing that, um, especially in my... Uh, my neighborhood is nice for biking. I have a calisthenic routine I do um, most nights. I start every day with 30 push-ups just to get ready for the hard work that the day is going to bring. So I, I do smatterings of all these things. What it brings home to me is just how hard it is to f- keep any of these things going on a regular mm-hmm. basis. It's always easy to fall off. And that, that keeps me in mind of what I'm asking patients to do, which is frequently hard for them. Mm-hmm. 
What do you do to avoid burnout? Jeez, you know, I got to tell you, I, I am usually so interested in all the things I get to do at work that I... You love your job. I love my job. Mm-hmm. I'm really excited to get into her every day. All right, well, good. Anything else you want to tell? No, it's been really fun to do this podcast.